We recorded this counter story slash bearing witness crossover episode before the shooting of Dante Wright. We present this as a special podcast, not aired on Amper's radio stations, as we process the latest in the long history of police shooting unarmed Black men. We will be publishing a new episode on Thursday as usual. Thank you. This week, we have a special show for you. As you know, I host a show with independent journalist Georgia Fort called Bearing Witness, where we compare notes from the week's events and connect the dots to past and present experiences and racial patterns in America. This episode is part of our Counter Stories Bearing Witness crossover. This is Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at Dendros Group and executive director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. I'm Don Eubanks, associate professor in School of Social Work at Metropolitan State University and cultural consultant. And I'm Helene Lee, owner of the Other Media Group. And we are very excited to have a special guest with us, Georgia Ford, who co-hosts with me on the Bearing Witness podcast. And we are so excited to be able to have you on this crossover episode of Counter Stories, where we get to check in with you about your experiences covering the trial. Uh, so, Ms. Georgia, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, some of your work about that you're doing with the Racial Reckoning Project. I am an independent journalist. And so within the Racial Reckoning Project, I'm providing daily updates for all of the amper stations on what's happening, not only in the courtroom during this trial, but also within the community. Um, outside of that, as an independent journalist, I'm still um, doing some other work surrounding this trial, including live streaming it in its entirety each and every day. Thank you so much, Georgia, for um, doing this crossover with us. And, you know, I, I, I'm interested in, in hearing a little bit about your background and how um, you've come to create Black Press um, and, and how and the interest that you had in covering this trial to begin with before the Racial Reckoning Project became a project. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Black Press is a company that I started uh, shortly after George Floyd was killed. And I just found myself uh, at a place being a journalist, being a media maker where I was not finding outlets, employers here in this market that I felt like I could work at and be my true authentic self, uh, both professionally and personally. And uh, the more that I did this work independently, the more I realized that there are a lot of BIPOC uh, independent journalists and media makers here who also don't have support or resources. And so Black Press was birthed out of uh, this desire to have community for independent journalist, and um, recognizing that there is a huge need to have diverse perspectives. Uh, when we turn on mainstream media, uh, we see uh, oftentimes uh, just snippets of stories. Oftentimes we see stories that is, uh, you know, more slanted towards a government narrative or a police narrative and, and not a narrative that uh, embodies community voices and perspectives. And so I think that that is uh, truly important in the work that I do. And so I wanted to create something that would provide an ecosystem for other 
independent media makers that are doing this work as well. And so that's why I started Black Press. And when I made a decision to uh, live stream this trial each and every day, regardless of whether or not I was going to be hired by some other entity, to me, it was important to give access to uh, individuals who may not consume media in traditional ways. You have some people who don't turn on the TV, who don't turn on the radio, but that are going to be interested in following this trial. I also wanted to um, center community voices when court is in recess. And so this has provided a platform for other independent journalists to amplify their work while this trial is in recess. You know, one of the things that I am excited about is when I listen to you ask questions of folks in community, they often are questions that mainstream media outlets, in particular predominantly white media outlets, don't ask. And they're actually the the questions that are most germane to me. Like they they're the thing that pulls me in and makes me want to listen to 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 the coverage even more. And so I've appreciated about that of, of how you engage in that way. What has been the response to uh, from community to your your um, way of being able to capture and capture stories so differently? I'm just curious about how folks have been responding to your coverage. There has been an outpouring of response, and so I'm super grateful. Okay. I, I feel like as much as I had a desire to be in mainstream media um, at this you know point in my career. Uh, I feel like I'm on the right side of history. And so it has been amazing to be uplifted by community, to be acknowledged for the work that I am doing, especially because I wasn't embraced by uh, the mainstream media outlets here. You know, I, I look back, there was a time where I had a much different perspective about my position as an independent journalist. Uh, before this happened, um, I you know, had applied for all of these stations and, you know, I had job offers in other markets, similar size markets based on my experience, my education, the accolades of being Emmy nominated, but they wouldn't hire me here. They'll, they'll, they'll hire me in the South. They'll hire me in Georgia. They'll hire me in Charlotte, but they wouldn't hire me here. And, uh, that was a hard pill to swallow. But when I finally did, and I started doing this work unapologetically, and I said, I don't need one of these networks to tell our stories. That's when the community recognized, uh, that I was going to, um, relentlessly continue amplifying our voices. And even when it's controversial, you know, I think back to the story that I did with the chief of police in Duluth, Minnesota, about his great aunt who uh, accused circus workers of rape, hmm. falsely accused them. And that was proven by a doctor's medical examination. Yet a mob formed and because of her accusation, hmm. and those men lost their lives. And to this day, no one has ever been charged with their murder. Yet and still, a direct descendant of that woman, Irene Tuscan, is the chief of police, you know? And that's not an easy story to tell. There's layers and, and uh, complexities to pointing that out, pointing that truth out. Uh, that is a skeleton that many people in that community would prefer to leave in the closet. And so as a storyteller, when you start mm. pulling skeletons out the closet, 
you know, it's not always uh, the safest or most popular thing to do. And uh, certainly I feel like I have paid a price with mainstream opportunities because of that. And so to be in this moment and to have an outpouring of support from my community has been truly a blessing and it's been affirming and encouraging that uh, I am on the right side of history and I am moving in the right direction. Wow, that kind of sounds like our experience at NPR. (laughs) But, you know, and that's really sad to hear that someone as talented as Georgia um, was shut out in this market because, you know, for those of us who have grown up here, uh, there are times where I feel like these major, our local major networks go out of their way to find uh, a white person from not from our community and hire them to do the news. And we have talent like this from our community that can't get in. And uh, and I'm not trying to personalize this, but that's hard to hear. And it kind of reinforces, I think, you know, some of our layman experience when we look at the whiteness of our news coverage uh, in the local media stations here. Yeah, I remember I was always applying for jobs at the media companies and stuff, and I never get a call back. And eventually I just started my own company. Just, <laughs> you know, you can't get hired anywhere. You, you, you might as well just do it yourself. Well, you know, the scholar once said the opposite of war is not peace, it's creation. And so we do great when we create our own spaces and that's part of the reason why Counter Stories exists. It's part of the reason why Bearing Witness is doing what it's doing. Um, and it's been amazing to be able to have a chance for these two um, independent and, and, and powerful um, communities of voices to come together and do this show. Um, this is amazing. And I can't wait to continue to provide, as you said, Georgia, those stories, right, as a storyteller. Um, and it's just unfortunate that sometimes we all are experiencing this pattern that sometimes we have to pay a cost to tell the truth and to tell the stories that need to be told. Um, just and unfortunately in many ways, just like brother George Floyd is, is attempting to be put on trial for his own victimization. We are not fighting for integration, nor are we fighting for separation. We are fighting for recognition as human beings. In fact, we are actually fighting for rights that are even greater than civil rights. And that is human rights. Malcolm X, Black Revolution. Now this week, we got to see the prosecution lay out some of the most clear and direct evidence around the killing of George Floyd from Chief Arredondo saying that's not how we operate to the many uh, sergeants and police representatives who, who said this is not what we are supposed to be doing completely Uh, going against the defense's case. And we have the medical examiners um, and medical expert witnesses testifying that, in their view, it was the knee on the neck that killed George Floyd. Unlike previous weeks where we've been oscillating between several uh, feelings of despair and, and is there a reason to be hopeful, this week felt very different. This week, for me, felt a little bit better in the grand scheme of things. Well, we got a lot to talk about and a lot to cover from this week and to catch up on. So, so Miss Georgia, I know you have been busy daily covering this and, and having to deal with your self-care in the midst of all of this. But, but 
break down this week for us. Yeah, this week was a uh, powerful uh, display for the prosecution. We heard uh, very, very uh, straightforward evidence from multiple medical professionals. Uh, we ended the week with testimony from the medical examiner, Dr. Andrew Baker, who actually documented the manner of death for George Floyd as a homicide. And to be honest with you, Anthony, I don't think that it gets any more clear mm. than that. And so to also have Dr. Tobin and Dr. Thomas both testify that they believe George Floyd died from a lack of oxygen. And not just based on the video that we all saw, but breaking that down by science and medical practices and showing just how much oxygen a person needs. Dr. Tobin's testimony uh, may actually be useful in the next trials uh, because you think about uh, the part of his testimony where he said that George Floyd didn't just die from a knee on the neck, but it was a combination of him laying on his stomach, being handcuffed, and having pressure on his body from those other two officers. And so Dr. Tobin may actually be a witness for the uh, next trials for the other former officers charged with George Floyd's death. And that's the first time that we've, I've kind of, I can recall in this coverage space, really getting something that, that signals to those next trials, which almost leave the mind when you start think, you know, cause we're so dialed in um, to this particular trial. The feeling is um, at least in my household, that this was a very bad week for the defense. And so I'm wondering if that if if that gels with your coverage and what you saw in some of the testimony. Well, yeah, I, I think that a def defense attorney, Eric Nelson, his first line of defense is try to discredit the witness. One of the first questions he asked Chief Arredondo, when's the last time you arrested somebody? <laughs> And insinuated that he was out of touch and that things have changed so much since he was out in the field as an officer that he can't possibly, you know, comment on what it's like to be out there. And uh, the defense attorney, Eric Nelson, always tries to uh, follow up behind the prosecution and unravel the testimony by discrediting the witness and by causing confusion. We know that this is part of the back and forth that uh, an attorney has to do for the, I mean, you got to grab onto anything that you can. I was with a group of, of, of judges um, on, a, on, a, on another project and, and, and lawyers. And one of the things that they were talking about is the fact that, you know, this is being televised. This is something that isn't practiced in Minnesota. <laughs> so we're seeing this in ways that we wouldn't normally see this publicly unless you were there in the courtroom. Those tactics aside, one of the things that it keeps bringing up are these connections to how people of color, in particular, black and brown bodies feel is often working against them, right? It's not just a drama in the courtroom that we're witnessing now, but this feeling of attempts to, at discreditation, attempts at blaming you for your own role and your own abuse. Um, you know, all of these tactics don't just hit as legal uh, strategies. These hit as everyday life. And I think that's one of the things that was in conversation in a lot of the places I was throughout the week, that, that, that there is this, this smacks of the everyday lived experience. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that this trial is symbolic of 
the gaslighting that Black Americans experience every single day. Mm. And I almost feel like, you know, seeing the video and that is evidence. It's been used as evidence. We all saw it. We know what we saw. And the defense has tried to gaslight us uh, and convince us that we didn't see what we saw. Hmm. Well, well, that that point right there that you brought up, I was listening to your coverage when they were talking to uh, talking about the video where the where the defense tried to say allegedly that George Floyd um, had had made mention of drugs, and they had to go back and the and the witness had to change their testimony. Can you tell us? Can you break that moment down for us? That was amazing. A BCA special agent was on the stand. And if you're not familiar with the BCA, Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, it is the entity that investigates uh, police killings so that, you know, police are not investigating themselves. And so during testimony for a BCA special agent, the defense played a three-second clip of the video of George Floyd dying. And he said, you know, what did you hear? Did it sound like George Floyd said, I ate too many drugs? And the BCA agent agreed that that is what he thought that he heard. Did you hear that? Yes, I did. Did it appear that Mr. Floyd said, I ate too many drugs? Yes, it did. And, you know, how the judge does, they go to this abrupt recess Mm -hmm. for like 10 minutes, they come back, and then the prosecution plays more context. So instead of just three seconds, they rewind even further. They play about 15 seconds so that you could hear what the officers around George Floyd were saying before that almost inaudible moment. Mm -hmm. And you hear it again. And now with this, you know, deeper context. So the record should reflect that we've played through 2021-10 with the quote that you were asked about appearing really at 2021-01, correct? Yes. Having heard it in context, you're able to tell uh, what Mr. Floyd is saying there? Yes, I believe Mr. Floyd was saying, I ain't do no drugs. So it's a little different than what you were asked about when we saw portion of the video, correct? Yes, sir. And so I think that this is the perfect example. You have the defense saying, I ate too many drugs. The prosecution saying, I ain't do any drugs. The same piece of evidence Hmm. presented in different ways to portray two different realities. That is symbolic of everything that we have witnessed so far in this trial. And uh, it was when you it was when you you kind of brought that part forward that that a bunch of things lined up for me. Um, not just the the strategy of the prosecution starting this week with Chief Arredondo, you know, trying to put into evidence that and and, and curtail what we started to get signaled from the defense, right? Trying to discredit um, and blame essentially blame George Floyd for his own death at the hands of police officers. It's very hard to contain the rage um, at that, you know, it, it being it being the, the defense attorney's job or not, you know, that's tough to listen to. And then, you know, so 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 I'm already starting to 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 grow in rage. And then we get the testimony from the doctors, which was a trifecta of of vindication, at least. 
But the question comes, you know, with the doctor saying, no, 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 here's what the actual medical evidence says. And I'm wondering, you know, to your point about the same pieces of evidence being used completely differently, it reminded me that soon the defense is going to get a chance to start putting things in front of us. What is your sense about how how the doctor's evidence is going to be used, uh, given what you've heard so far from the defense? Well, again, and it's the same evidence, right? But it's going to be presented to portray two different realities. And so the evidence has already portrayed that George Floyd had drugs in his system. And so the defense is going to call forward witnesses that are going to cooperate what they're trying to portray as reality, which is that George Floyd died of a drug overdose and underlying health conditions as opposed to a lack of oxygen due to Derek Chauvin's knee on his neck. And so every witness that they call forward is going to support that theory. Every uh, witness that they call forward is going to point out the evidence of fentanyl and drugs. And uh, I think we heard from the medical examiner that a tumor was found, that he had tested positive for COVID. All of these things are uh, going to be presented as cause of death, as contributors to death, as underlying conditions. If it weren't because of the fact that he had COVID, he wouldn't have died from, you know, just a little knee on the neck. If it wasn't for the fact that he had done these drugs, there's no way a knee on the neck could have killed him. That That is what they're going to do. And uh, it, it's sad to say, you know, you talked about that rage that's building up. I think if we were not in a place as a nation that had not been so dismissive to so many other officers who had taken the life of unarmed Black men, and we could really truly trust this process. I don't think that you would be feeling that way, right? Mm. You would have a little more hope and faith in this process. But because we have seen cases like Rodney King and Philando Castile be dismissed and you know, officers found not guilty. It's really hard to hear incriminating evidence and testimony. And it's like, yes, everything that they just said this week is pointing to a guilty conviction, but yet and still, there's still a part of you (laughs) that is doubting the possibility that we can get a guilty verdict in this case. Well, you reminded us in, in an earlier episode of Bearing Witness that we we had our hopes you know, aligned and thought we thought everything was was clear and cut in Philando's case and a jury of peers found the officer not guilty. I, I get the, the the sense that this jury's different, that something still feels different, but yes, that 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 piece is in there. You know, there's two things that you reminded me of in what you just said, and one is um, back to the uh, forensic pathologist who, where the defense tried to cross, said unequivocally, the cause of death was 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 the result of the police actions in here that that oh that w- it was to the point of of trying to refute that he would have died he may have died if it you know anyway in the situation and she was very clear that no i do not believe that the george floyd would have died and have no reason to believe that george floyd would have died if it wasn't for the encounters with police officers that was a powerful moment from this week for me 
Oh, absolutely. And I think that Dr. Thomas was uh, a very colorful witness. And I think that she chose her her words wisely. And during cross-examination, when uh, Attorney Nelson was trying to find any little thing, any little hole in her testimony, uh, she stood her ground very well. I actually, I had a bit of a chuckle, a chuckle when uh, she, she said it could or not, <laughs> uh, her sarcasm that came through because uh, Attorney Nelson was just drilling her so hard, almost the same questions over and over, just restated in different ways. And uh, she did not waver. You know, um, Alex um, uh, Reyes Schroeder, who was on an earlier episode of Bearing Witness, who's who's doing you know recaps throughout the day from from her you know stance, um, you know brought forward the fact that the expert witnesses, you know, when we're talking about the expert witness testimony that we got from these doctors, th- these aren't just any experts. I mean, these are are leading folks in their fields. In fact, she mentioned in one of her posts um, that she's had clients who have paid you know, twenty and $30,000 just to get experts at this caliber. It's going to be difficult for the defense to marshal witnesses to refute what these leaders in their field have said definitively this week. You know, the one thing that makes this case stand out, uh, aside from any other case, is the video evidence that we got almost immediately after it happened. And so uh, even with Philando Castile, we didn't really see what happened. Mm. We saw the aftermath. And so what really separated this case was the fact that um, Darnella Frazier stood there and recorded this uh, as it was happening, the entire incident. So we didn't have to wait for body camera footage to come out. We didn't just see the aftermath. Uh, We saw it in its entirety. So, you know, what kind of impact will this have? whether it's the prosecution or the defense, I think that this trial, it possesses the power to set Mm. a precedent for policing across our country. And, you know, if there is a guilty verdict, I think that across the board, we're going to see a lot of statewide and uh, city-wide changes to police policies uh, in terms of use of force going forward. So I, I just want to check in with you all. You know, you you were able to hear Miss um, Georgia kind of break down her her coverage, amazing coverage throughout the week of some of the things that came up. And I'm just curious, what were some of the patterns and interesting things that came to your mind as you were listening to the breakdown and recap from this week? Well, first, I just want to commend you, Georgia, um, for the work that you've been doing. I can't, I, for myself, I haven't been able to watch. Um, my husband watches it when he's home and I'll literally, I'll literally be like, I'll just go into my office and watch something, you know, some stupid movie on my computer because especially when, when last week, when we had testimony from the witnesses, it was so emotional. And I couldn't imagine being a juror and listening to the testimony and, and not getting emotional about it. And, but, you know, we, we, don't, we never see the jurors on the, on the coverage anyways, right? So, Georgia, what is it like for you being in, in the courtroom and really hearing and seeing all this happen in real time? 
Yeah, it's definitely intense. And, you know, you do get a different perspective when you're able to see faces and you're able to see someone smirk under their mask or you're able to see someone kind of twirling around, fiddling with their pen because they're bored or someone who's very intent and taking notes. Um, so to to see people's responses to different witnesses and in testimony has definitely brought a, a different element to covering this trial that many people don't get to see. Uh, and one small uh, subtle thing I'll say uh, before, because I'd love to hear from Don on his thoughts, but, uh, you know, the chair that is set out for the family of George Floyd and the chair that is set out for Derek Chauvin. Uh, every day we see a different relative. Sometimes they swap out. There's two or three relatives in a day for George Floyd. But all the way up until I think Friday, there was no one who had been coming into the courtroom to support Derek Chauvin. And uh, then some speculate that it was uh, his ex-wife who made an appearance. And uh, because Derek Chauvin is out on bail, he's able to come in with her at the morning, uh, leave with her at lunchtime, and leave with her at the the end of, of the day. And so it's those subtle things that you don't see that do add another layer of either tension or emotion or, you know, anxiety uh, from from covering and, and watching this trial. Don, what's been coming up for you as as you listen to the coverage and you, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see from your vantage point. Well, Anthony and Haley and, and Georgia, you know, I've commented on our last Counter Stories podcast that um, a, a few times in the past couple of weeks that I also, like Haley, have elected not to follow the court case during the day. I uh, do site visits with students. I'm busy doing work, but I purposely don't have the channel on the court case. Um, and that, I think, that, you know, my decision to do that was to uh, protect myself because the this, this familiar pattern of how these cases play out is, you know, this one is just following suit with uh, historically how we have seen and how these cases tend to break down. For us, how police never are convicted. And unfortunately, all it takes is usually about 5.30, 6 o'clock in the evening, I'll turn on the news like an idiot. And I did so just as they were showing the video with the testimony provided by that the, the expert that talked about, and they showed that little bit of video of when uh, George Floyd's life left him. And that shook me. Um, I've seen the video of Chauvin and his knee on his neck, but this angle showed George Floyd's eyes. Mm. And with that gentleman sitting there stating, here, that's where George Floyd died. And they showed that. That tore the heart out of my chest to watch someone leave, leave us like that under those kind of circumstances. And then when you throw that kind of trauma on top of 
the trauma our communities have dealt with historically um, in cases like this. And, and, you know, we went through this. We covered, you know, through Counter Stories, we covered Philandro Castile from beginning to end only to have that shocking uh, decision when we, <laughs> we all saw what happened in that instance. We all saw what happened with Floyd. And yet there's that part of us, that part of us that says, oh my God, he could still get off. Even though we've seen with our own two eyes and now we're hearing this testimony. Um, you're, you know, I listened to the, you guys, the two of you talk about this and, and the very things that you described I think are the very things I and many of us in the community are feeling that the prosecution is proving what we saw. And then when the defense attorney jumps in and starts questioning, he immediately starts playing on those racist tropes, those, those kind of racial types of imagery and you know, the, the fact that you know, he keeps, because his whole defense is on the fact that George Floyd had drugs in his system. But when you, when you examine that closer and you look at how, how, you know, starting with the war on drugs and how that whole war on drugs thing played out. And as you know, I used to be director of the chemical health division for the state of Minnesota. And I clearly saw in that position how we have two systems when it comes to substance abuse and drugs in our communities. Generally, white kids, if they get st pulled over for and stopped with uh, illegal drugs in their possession, they get directed to treatment or taken home. And when members of our communities, African-American and Native American get stopped, they're directed to jail. And so we have two different systems and two different stories that follow our communities when it comes to that. And we're seeing that play out in the court because it's the only thing he really has to lay his case on. But it's painful to have to sit there and listen to that. And I'm not looking forward to, to the defense when they start their, their, their part of the trial because it's gonna be, it's gonna be hard to have to listen to that. You know, I just I I want to I want to um, just give some context. You know, Don, you you come to us um, with multiple identities. Uh, you know, playing out here, um, being black and native, former director of the Chemical Health Division in, at DHS, but then you were also the Commissioner of Health and Human Services for the Malax Band of Ojibwe for a while. Correct. Correct. And so, and so, you know, when you bring that, that experience and then as a professor trying, you know, teaching your comparative racial analysis class and prepping social workers, you know, and, and, and being in charge of those areas, you get to see a bunch of the um, hands-on um, areas of a lot of what is, what is being dog whistling alluded to in this, in this whole case that's on trial. And so I thank you for bringing up some of that clarity. You know, you laid out some patterns, you know, Lee, you know, you've got a journalism and filmmaking background and we're watching this, um, you know, play out. I'm really curious as you talk about, you know, having to put it down and relying and, you know, and I thank goodness for Ms. George's coverage and the whole team from race, from the racial reckoning project who are helping to break it down. Cause there'll be folks who would never, 
who, who would make the choice, would have to be forced to have the choice of not paying attention at all for their own health. Um, and you all are truly bearing witness and helping to break it down so that we can take, you know, the bite-sized summaries um, with us without having to endure it. And so I appreciate that. Absolutely. And I'm just curious um, about as you all are going through your daily experiences throughout the week, how are you being you in this moment? I guess I'm, 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 you know, it's something that we ask every guest that comes in, but I'm curious about not just how you're making through, but how are you um, continuing to be your full authentic self in the midst of this moment? I would say by distancing myself from a lot of things, including not just the trial, um, but being out in community. I haven't really been out in community much. I haven't gone out. I haven't seen people. I haven't done any organizing much since, you know, last year, um, I have so much anxiety over the pandemic and then the anxiety over the trial on top of it. And then the anxiety of like, you know, afraid for my mom to go to the grocery store, you know, all of these anxieties have, has gotten me cowering in my corner and my connection really to all of this that's going on is the coverage that the racial reckoning project and Georgia Ford has been doing and just following along and taking in just what I can handle per day Mm. Um, and focusing on, you know, just working. I'm a workaholic. Uh, If I'm working and I'm editing, I'm not thinking about other things. If I'm animating, I'm thinking about that. I'm not, you know, I lose track of time. And, and that's, I just feel like there's so much anxiety on me right now. And I got my first vaccine shot so I have I really like honestly when I left the clinic I felt a weight lifted off of me um, that I was able to get my vaccine and so I guess for me be being myself right now is just hanging out with my family we're all um, part at least partially vaccinated or fully vaccinated at this point um, and just trying to to remember that I'm lucky for what I do have, I'm lucky that my family has been healthy. I'm lucky that we haven't had any violent, no physical actions against us. And, and I, I, yeah, I mean, you know, fishing season's coming up, so I'm happy about that. And the weather is nice and, you know, I'm going outdoors again and just really focusing on me. You know, I, I, it was great to see a picture. We had Rose McGee on, um, on our show and um, it, she had mentioned on that show that she was going to be gathering and doing her sweet potato comfort pies in support of Asian women. And so I got to see you with your your pies. Um, and so it was great to see that as well in, in terms of that intersectional solidarity. Um, you know, that meant so much to me. Um, I, had, I had only just met her mm. and, and she brought a pie and I ate it with my mom. And I'm, oh, I'm getting emotional just talking about it now. Um, it meant so much to me to see that solidarity mm. and that she thought of me um, and she saved me a pie and I was out of town and she saved one for me, you know, and it just, it meant so much. So Rose, that's, thank you. I love you. <laughs> that's Miss McGee, our, one of our community healers. Don, how are you being you throughout all of this this week? Well, I'm, you know, I'm always me. Um, <laughs> that's what I love about you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Anthony, when you, when you reach our age, 
there's nothing that phases you. You still do things to to protect yourself. But you know, I, I was sitting here just thinking about how how we're witnessing this. Folks who are actually following it are witnessing it, and there's no way you cannot. I mean, even when we purposely don't watch the trial, it you still hear what's happened during the course of a day. I, I think I've used this phrase once before where um, there's a quote supposedly attributed to a Native American ancestor that states that uh, the white man speaks with forked tongue. Hmm. And, you know, when I first heard that, I wasn't quite sure what it meant. But now that you've, now that we've all kind of dealt with white supremacy, and we've dealt with this with the dominant culture. We often can see how they say one thing and then mean or do something else. And I think this court case is ramming at home for so many of us that there's such a difference between what we think should happen and what legally will happen. Mm -hmm. So even though we see what happened to George Floyd, we are now going to hear when the defense comes on their theory of what happened. And then it will be decided by a legal system not created by us, but one that has definitely been used to hold us down. You know, the other thing that's happening, Anthony, is I got I got 31 days left. 31 days and I'm retired. So yeah, I'm in that countdown. So I mm -hmm. have this excitement because i too am vaccinated um he's got senioritis <laughs> <laughs> i'm vaccinated but at one point in time i couldn't believe that my retirement was colliding with the pandemic and i had to worry whether or not i was going to make it through the pandemic in order to retire mm. think about that right and so just, and just compounding this moment. Exactly. And then you throw on what happens to our community and we all carry that weight. Right. And so, and so we're all kind of, I think the community soldiering through this, but we're soldiering through with bated breath because hmm. it feels like we're, we're holding on to see what's going to happen, even though we know what should happen. Wow. Thank you for that. Miss Georgia, how are you being you in this moment this week? Well, you know, Anthony, it's challenging as a journalist. I have to be in the thick of it, uh, live streaming this trial every day, taking notes every day, uh, doing reports at the end of the court days, a lot to take in. And so I am being me in this moment by embracing my humanity, even if it's just for a moment, each day. And so uh, my father, who I hadn't seen in over a year and a half, came to visit for Easter and stayed almost a week. And he used to live uh, in South Minneapolis, not too far from the third precinct. In fact, he was the groundskeeper for the mall area where the Wendy's and the AutoZone is mm. that burnt down. And he wanted to go back there. And so I, I took a moment to just be his daughter and spend time with him. And for the first time, I went to George Floyd Square without a camera, uh, not as journalist, but as the daughter of Ellis McClellan, uh, who, you know, 
is a black man and very well could have been George Floyd. And mm. so I am being me in this moment by finding those little moments to uh, take off my professional hat and uh, be who I am in this moment outside of, uh, you know, being a journalist. But I'll say that's taking up a, a lot of, of, of my time. And so even uh, within that, there has been community conversations for Black journalists. The National Association for Black Journalists held a clubhouse conversation where a lot of us got to come together and unpack those complexities of being Black and covering this trial and trying to be unbiased, uh, unbiased balanced, and fair. Um, and that's hard. And I think sometimes the public forgets that uh, it's challenging for Black journalists to do this work. So that was refreshing also to have um, that moment. And um, a, a special shout out to uh, Steve, who is working for CARE 11 as a special assignment during this time um, covering this trial because he's the one who invited me and we were able to connect after he used a piece of my interview with the nine-year-old witness Judea for the CARE 11 broadcast. Um, and so it is it is in those small moments that I'm, I'm finding uh, peace and quiet unplugged from this trial that I can truly be myself. <laughs> You know, it's it's funny. I was thinking about, um, you know, a, a conversation that we had offline, just, you know, comparing notes between how your conversations with your husband and engaging in what or, or how that dynamic is playing out. Um, and and my wife and I were talking, my wife is 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 definitely in the space of, of needing to try to f- take her breaths. Um, but but then finding in moment it, it coming through in moments and, and updates coming through in moments. Um, and where it just hits her, and I think she's she's been put in Facebook jail a couple of times just from being able to say what's really on her mind. And it's and it's it's that piece right there of, of saying exactly what's on your mind right now, and who can and cannot do that. Um, and that's what's been on my mind this week about what if we're really real with it. I remember I, I, for our anniversary, our, our 16th anniversary was like April 2nd, and I bought her a radio for her car. Um, so that she could connect her Bluetooth. And and I'm like, I'm not about to pay anybody uh, to do something I can figure out myself. And an hour and a half into the job that should have only taken 30 minutes, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm like, I'm going to save this money. And I would not let go of it. <laughs> I would not let go of it. That bubbles over at these random moments that you don't realize that you haven't been, been, you know, that you may have been taking some care of yourself, but you haven't necessarily been releasing the pressure cooker all the ways. And it, and it, and it bubbles over. And my son comes out and he opens the door and he says, dad, can we have Fasica for dinner? The just release of, you know what? I'm not about it. it, it that simple question. He hops in the front seat. He asks me a little bit what I'm doing. Really, he's trying to make sure that we can go get Fasica because he threw it into the conversation five or six times. Um, and this is the young man who watched me slam things, grab my keys and run, as we talked about last week, uh, to 38th in, in, in Chicago. There's the care that we have for ourselves, but then there's also the care that we have for all the folks around us. That's that's how I'm being me. And so, um, and I thank you all so much for sharing how you're being you in this moment. I think it's powerful to get to hear the different ways in which folks are trying to process and deal with this moment. It's helpful to me because it gives me a bunch of ideas and, and ways of being. And one of those things, I'm going to borrow from you, Georgia. 
You got to have dad come and your dad come and spend that time. I haven't been able to spend that time with my grandmother because of, of, of COVID. And now we're both in a space of being vaccinated. And so for the first time, we're going to go to her backyard. We're going to cook. We're going to talk stuff. We're going to laugh. We're going to joke. We're going to get five or six sermons from grandma because she's, she, she's always ready. Um, but we're going to just be. And I think one of the things that to Don, to your point that you, you brought in just straight up 100%, keeping it 100, uh, when in doubt, just be and, and be all, all the you that you've always been, um, as you engage and you process. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Don and Lee in this, uh, bearing witness counter stories crossover. Of course, thank you, Ms. Georgia, for your coverage and your recaps. You're doing the work and, and, and keeping us all, all abreast of what's going on. This has been Counter Stories. I'm Anthony Galloway, Senior Partner of Dendros Group and Executive Director of Arts Us. I'm Don Eubanks, Associate Professor in the School of Social Work at Metropolitan State University and Cultural Consultant. And I'm Halili, owner of The Other Media Group. And of course, our very special guest... Independent journalist, Georgia Ford. This is Counter Stories. This program is a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.